Good writers borrow, great writers steal, Jake was thinking. That ubiquitous phrase was attributed to T.S. Eliot, which didn't mean Eliot hadn't himself stolen it. But Eliot had been talking, perhaps less than seriously, about the theft of language, phrases, and sentences and paragraphs, not of a story itself. Besides, Jake knew, as Eliot had known, as all artists ought to know, that every story, like every single work of art, from the cave paintings to whatever was playing at the Park Theater in Cobleskill to his own puny books, was in conversation with every other work of art, bouncing against its predecessors, drawing from its contemporaries, harmonizing with the patterns, all of it, paintings and choreography and poetry and photography and performance art and the ever-fluctuating novel, was whirling away in an unstoppable spin-art machine of its own. And that was a beautiful, thrilling thing. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is novelist Jean Hand Korlitz. Jean is the author of many books, including You Should Have Known, a novel that was adapted into last fall's hit HBO limited series, The Undoing, which starred Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. Her brand new novel, The Plot, is both a story within a story and a moral conundrum played out as a suspense thriller. It's about a struggling writer who stumbles upon what, by all accounts, is the greatest story ever, or at least in this case, never told. The problem is it belongs to someone else. In this conversation, Jean talked with me about what a story really is and why the boundaries of ownership can get so murky. She also talked about some of her other books, two of which, 2009's Admission and 2017's The Devil and Webster, were set on college campuses and delve into the lives of school administrators trying to negotiate with a changing world. She has a lot to say about the state of higher education, the state of higher culture, and how reading and writing has been reshaped by the constraints of the pandemic. Jean Hanth Korlitz, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Thank you for having me. The plot. The novel is such a page turner. Uh, you are not only an incredibly gifted literary writer, you have a skill that most of us do not, certainly I do not, which is that you can craft a plot that twists and turns all over the place, but still moves at, at a pretty breakneck pace. So I'm curious, before we get into the novel itself, what it's about, like, how do you how do you do that? Is this something you've always been able to do? Or have you just kind of figured it out recently? Well, first of all, thank you for calling me a literary writer, which is all I've ever wanted to be called. You get, you know, I'm I'm your slave just for calling me that. But um, okay. you know, these plots are are gifts. I mean, I, I'm I'm a deeply unspiritual person, as anyone who knows me knows. But I I, I do believe that these little sparks of light just come occasionally a few times in a lifetime if you're very lucky. Um, and have the wit to recognize them uh, out of nowhere. And this is the second time that I've gotten a plot like this. This The first time was with You Should Have Known, which later became, uh, or I should say a version of which later became The Undoing. Um, but I knew exactly what it was when I got the idea. And I knew that it was important. And I knew that I had to basically stop my life in order to write this novel. So. Um, what it's about is it's about a writer 
and you know, there's the conventional wisdom that you're not writers are not supposed to write about writers. So I always had that. Oh, really? That That's been violated about. many times. It has been. It has been. And I'm actually not sure why the, the notion persists, but there there is this conventional wisdom that readers do not like to read books about writers. I, I don't know why. I love reading books about writers, but then again... You, well, you would. We would. If I were a, a grocery clerk, I, I would probably like reading books about grocery clerks, if only to see all the ways in which people got it wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's about a writer named Jake who uh, I think we can pretty much call a failure. He's a, he's a failed writer, certainly in his own uh, mind. He uh, published a first novel that got a little blip of attention and then uh, basically fumbled his chance to follow that up with a, a good enough second novel. And uh, since his second novel tanked, he has nothing. There's just nothing. Uh, he has no ideas. He's sort of losing heart and losing faith in himself. And he's teaching in a in an MFA program, which um, is is not a great MFA program like the one I think you went to. <laughs> it's a pretty bottom of the barrel, uh, low residency MFA program uh, in northern Vermont. And into his seminar walks just the worst of all possible students, a guy who is so arrogant and so kind of caustic um, that, you know, he's a braggart and he brags that he doesn't need to be there because he has the best plot that anybody's ever written and it's foolproof and it's going to get all the brass rings and be massively successful. And he wants to say, oh yeah, right. Uh, but then in a private conference, the student actually tells him the plot and he knows to his great chagrin that he's absolutely right. This book is going to be incredibly successful and it's not fair, but there are rules about these things. And so he kind of resigns himself to, to being, uh, you know, the, the guy who has to watch this horrible student become incredibly successful. And what happens is that a few years later, he 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 looks up the guy online to sort of see whatever happened to him because he doesn't think the book has ever been published because he would have heard about it. And what he discovers is that the student is dead, and uh, not not recently either. He he has died only a few months after their encounter in the writing program, and he has the kind of experience with this plot that I had with the plot of the novel. Sorry to get so yeah, mad no, on this you. Was, this was very, no, this was going to be my next, uh, my, my meta question. Okay, like this, I this, love meta questions. This, this is about what to do. Well, no, this is about a story being kind of presented to you. Like it's just suddenly there. Yeah. And you had, it's, you obviously did not steal this story, but it, it came to you pretty quickly, pretty, pretty suddenly. So before we talk about what Jake, this character, did with this story, tell us how you found this story. How, okay. how did you grab it from the ether? Uh, okay, it's a, it's a kind of weird story. I mean, talk about meta stories, stories about stories. But I had been working for a long time, a uh, couple of years at least, on a very different novel, a much more of a literary novel. I, I had lunch yesterday with Meg Wallitzer, and I, I told her I always thought of it as my Meg Wallitzer novel. Um, 
about a Brooklyn family with all these children who hate one another and what happens to them. And it wasn't quite working. And my uh, beloved editor was not buying, literally not buying it. (laughs) And uh, we were having a meeting in her office in which uh, she was explaining to me why she wasn't buying the book yet. You know, what, what, what still had to happen with this book. I had to rewrite it again. And that was not our first meeting on the subject. It was, in fact, our second meeting, uh, almost identical to a meeting we had six months before in which she also explained to me why she wasn't buying the book. And in the middle of this meeting, I said to her, I have another idea. And then I just told her this kind of half-formed story. It was so new. I had never told it to myself, really. But I already knew that uh, it was it was a, a worthwhile uh, plot. It was a plot that uh, required me to take action. And as I told her the story, I could see her get excited about it, which was you know very gratifying. But she was so excited that in fact she bought both novels <laughs> the next day, um, and and we decided that we would you know that I would put aside the novel that. I clearly needed to take a break from and write this instead. There was such a kind of propulsion about this, uh, about this story. And then we had this pandemic, maybe you heard about it. And uh, I was kind of stuck at home for months and uh, very motivated to immerse myself in a world that was not the world that we were all living in. And it, it was just a kind of, perfect alignment of circumstances that enabled me to write this novel, the plot in about four months. Oh, wow. I don't know if you should go admitting that I wrote it, <laughs> it only took you four months because not because it, it's like, it makes every other writer so envious. Um, but uh, it certainly doesn't, it does not read like something that you wrote quickly. It certainly reads quickly, but uh, it does. It's, yeah, the reading well, experience is yeah. fast, but um, it's uh, what a what a. I'm get the first to, to admit that a novel that was written in four months does not sound like a novel that I personally want to read. But it was four months plus forty years of writing novels, uh, you know, that it takes to recognize what this was and to act on it. Um, and and I and uh, frankly, I wasn't doing anything else during those. That's true. Good <laughs> those point. Four Good months. Point. It was really nonstop and. And, and frankly, not very uh, uh, pleasurable at all. It was very intense and very uh, unpleasant. Uh, and I, I kind of hope it never happens again. But uh, I, I, I just couldn't stop until I got through it. And there was remarkably little uh, revision, certainly, you know, compared to the book that I had put aside in order to write it. So it, it feels like the right words hit the page in the right order. And uh I I'm I'm very very happy with this book. I mean in a, in a weird way it's kind of the culmination of my god I hate this word but journey as a writer. <laughs> well, why don't you read uh a, a, a little bit from it? Let's uh, get a little taste. Okay, so this is an excerpt that pretty much describes just what we were talking about, that feeling of recognizing an idea and understanding its importance and that you are going to have to stop what you're doing and write this book. Um, Jake has just discovered that his former student, Evan, is dead. And this magical 
story that he told or that Jake, Jake heard from him in, in his office at the writing program is now just sitting there waiting, waiting for a new person to come along and tell it. And uh, the decision that he made makes at this moment is going to have very, very serious implications for the rest of his life, which he's unfortunately going to discover. But uh, this is a short uh, excerpt about that moment. Stories are maddeningly elusive. There is no deep mine of them to blast around in or big box store with wide aisles of unused, undreamed of, and thrillingly new narratives for a writer to push a big empty shopping cart through, waiting for something to catch their eye. But every now and then some magical little spark flew up out of nowhere and landed in the consciousness of a person capable of bringing it to life. This was occasionally called inspiration, though inspiration was not a word writers themselves tended to use. Those magical little sparks tended not to waste time in declaring themselves. They woke you up in the mornings with an annoying tap-tap and a sense of unfolding urgency, and they hounded you through the days that followed. The idea, the characters, the problem, the setting, lines of dialogue, descriptive phrases, and opening sentence. To Jake, the word that comprised the relationship between a writer and their spark was responsibility. Once you were in possession of an actual idea, you owed it a debt for having chosen you and not some other writer. And you paid that debt by getting down to work, not just as a journeyman fabricator of sentences, but as an unshrinking artist, ready to make painful, time-consuming, even self-flagellating mistakes. Rising to this responsibility was a matter facing your blank page or screen, and muzzling the critics inside your head at least long enough for you to get some work done, all of which was profoundly difficult, none of which was optional. What's more, you stepped away from it at your peril, because if you failed in this grave responsibility, you might well find, after some period of distraction or even less than fully committed work, that your precious spark had left you. Gone, in other words, as suddenly and unexpectedly as it had appeared, and your novel along with it, though you might spin your reels for a few months or a few years or the rest of your life, hopelessly throwing words onto the page or screen in a stubborn refusal to face what had happened. And there was something else, an extra dark superstition for any writer hubristic enough to ignore the spark of a great idea. Even if that writer was not of a religious bent, even if he did not believe that everything happens for a reason, even if, indeed, he resisted magical thinking of any other conceivable kind. The superstition held that if you did not do right by the magnificent idea that had chosen you among all possible writers to bring it to life, that great idea didn't just leave you to spend your stupid and ineffectual wheels. It actually went to somebody else. A great story, in other words, wanted to be told. And if you weren't going to tell it, it was out of here. It was going to find another writer who would and you would be reduced to watching somebody else write and publish your book. Intolerable. Once, long ago, Jake had done his best to honor what he'd been given. He had recognized his spark and done right by it, never shirking the hard thinking and the careful writing, pushing himself to do well and then to do better. He had pursued no shortcuts and evaded no effort. He had taken his chance against the world, submitting himself to the opinions of publishers, reviewers, and ordinary readers, but favor had passed over him and moved on to others. What was he to do? 
Who was he to be if no other spark ever came to him again? It was unbearable to contemplate. Good writers borrow, great writers steal, Jake was thinking. That ubiquitous phrase was attributed to T.S. Eliot, which didn't mean Eliot hadn't himself stolen it. But Eliot had been talking, perhaps less than seriously, about the theft of language, phrases, and sentences, and paragraphs, not of a story itself. Besides, Jake knew, as Eliot had known, as all artists ought to know, that every story, like every single work of art, from the cave paintings to whatever was playing at the Park Theater in Cobleskill to his own puny books, was in conversation with every other work of art, bouncing against its predecessors, drawing from its contemporaries, harmonizing with the patterns, all of it, paintings and choreography and poetry and photography and performance art and the ever-fluctuating novel, was whirling away in an unstoppable spin-art machine of its own. And that was a beautiful, thrilling thing. He would hardly be the first to take some tale from a play or a book, in this case a book that had never been written, and create something entirely new from it. Miss Saigon from Madame Butterfly, The Hours from Mrs. Dalloway, The Lion King from Hamlet, for goodness sake. It wasn't even taboo, and obviously it wasn't theft. Even if Parker's manuscript actually existed at the time of his death, Jake had never seen more than a couple of pages of it. He remembered little of what he had seen. Surely what he himself might make from so little would belong to him and only to him. These, then, were the circumstances in which Jake found himself that January evening at his computer in his cruddy Cobleskill apartment in the leather-stocking region of upstate New York, out of pride, hope, time, and, he could finally admit, ideas of his own. He hadn't gone looking for this. He had upheld the honor of writers who listened to the ideas of other writers and then turned responsibly back to their own. He had absolutely not invited the brilliant spark his student had abandoned, okay, involuntarily abandoned, to come to him, but come it had. And here it was, this urgent, shimmering thing, already tap-tapping in his head, already hounding him, the idea, the characters, the problem. So what was Jake going to do about that? A rhetorical question, obviously. He knew exactly what he was going to do about that. (laughs) Thank you. We don't want to give too much away, um, but I think we're allowed to say that he, Jake takes this story and he uh, writes a novel that's quite a bit more successful than his previous novels. So it's such a huge success. I mean, it's almost like a, like a, like a caricature of a, of an immensely successful novel. Although it's certainly, it's believable. There are novels that have succeeded uh, on this sort of level. Like what would you compare it to? Is it kind of like a, Jonathan Franzen corrections well, level that's a, that's kind of. That's a good one. I hadn't thought of that one, but you know, every time I said to myself, "Oh, you know, I'm I am giving this novel." Jake's novel is called Crib. Um, I'm giving Crib too much success. It's just it's unrealistic. And then I remember Gone Girl. You know, Gone Girl would have won. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, oh, so it's like Gone Girl because let's just you know. So he this is an Oprah's book club selection. Is he what else? Like what are the sort of uh, benchmarks? Well, uh, uh, then the next scene, literally the next scene after the excerpt that I just read, it finds Jake on the stage of a venue in Seattle where uh, Seattle City Arts and Letters has events. And I checked how many 
seats it has, it has 2,400 seats. And, okay. you know, they fill that venue. I certainly have never appeared at a venue with anything like 2,400 seats. I'm lucky, or I've, you know, I've been lucky if I had 20 people turn up to a reading. That was a good day for me. But, you know, I, I've been in theaters where David Sedaris walked in and we all clapped. And right. uh, that's uh, certainly the exception for writers. But but it does happen. And I, I'm sure if Gillian Flynn at the height of Gone Girl, or perhaps even today, uh, gave a reading at the this particular theater in Seattle where Jake appears, I'm sure it would fill up. Right. Okay. But And this is getting rave reviews as well. This is being taken seriously as a literary work. Uh, and a commercial work. Right. right. My, so, my book or his book? My book his, or... Well, th- your, this will be the case for your book. Okay. No, his, his book, yes, for the moment. The Yes. So the crib is, it really has hit every possible mark. This is a dream come true. Yes, and also he gets on the cover of Poets and Writers, you know, which, you know, is not the same <laughs> as People Magazine, too. But for a writer, which he obviously is a very serious writer, this is part of the fantasy. So... I mean, every good thing is happening to him. He's the book has been optioned by a guy named Steven Spielberg. Spielberg. Um, he's been at Oprah selection. It's just there's there's no downside to his book. It is wowing everybody, and then somebody gets in touch, and this is what he's been afraid of since that moment the, in the excerpt that I just read that somebody would accuse him of doing something, and you know. In his own mind, he hasn't done anything wrong, but he's still terrified because he knows how what he did will appear to almost everybody out there. And he's really terrified that it will get out. So, you know, let's be clear. Jake does not, he doesn't steal, he's not plagiarizing, right? He's not like, he's not stolen anything in any kind of line by line way. He has taken um, a very general kind of, story outline and created his own characters uh, created his own locations uh and so let's talk a little bit about like what did he do wrong exactly because in, in the excerpt that you just read you talk about obviously you know there's there are only so many stories right like yes. the lion king is based on on hamlin uh the hours is based on mrs dalloway we can go through a, a very long list yeah so yeah. what's the distinction here well, I think I, I think the situation is probably best expressed by s- saying that about a week before uh, the plot came out, uh, you know, of course, I was watching Goodreads very carefully to see how people were reacting to early, uh, you know, reviews of the galley. And I, I started to <laughs> see things like, isn't this the plot of so-and-so? And doesn't this sound like so-and-so? And the, you know, the, oh. obviously I can't know what's, what was in the minds of people, the people who wrote uh, these comments, but it sounds accusatory as if I have done something wrong. In fact, one of the uh, comments actually uh, suggested that I had copied the plot of uh, Death Trap by Ira Levin, which, <laughs> duh, really? No. <laughs> But um, but in in the same comment, the the writer said something like, "If I were Ira Levin and alive, which he's not, unfortunately, I would be on the phone to my lawyer." And and this is the problem. This is the perception that um, we're all thieves and magpies and uh, cheats 
and not original enough to come up with our own stories. And so, I mean, I was, my blood was boiling when I read that, but I was also, I thought, exactly. That's exactly the issue. No, that is so strange. I this know. is like a meta upon meta kind totally, of. Uh, totally, totally. And, and by the way, I'm keeping a list of all the things that I supposedly stole from. We're up to about six different novels and movies now, but, but really um, it's just a piece of the story that appeared somewhere else. You know, there's a washed up writer. Okay. So I copied that from such and such a place. There's uh, the idea of plagiarism. I copied that from such and such a place. All of these ideas, of course, are out there. And it's how we combine them and use them and weave them uh, that makes our individual novels. I mean, have, have I read novels that are, seem extremely derivative? And I think to myself, I feel like I've read this book before. Sure. But... Uh, that's certainly something that I would would hope to avoid and work very hard to avoid. Right. So, but, okay. So Jake has taken this story. What, in your mind, what did he do wrong? Is it because the student is dead? Because the, 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 he, the story never had a chance to be published. It's not sort of, it doesn't exist in the public domain as a kind of trope. Is that, the problem? I would say he's so attracted to it because it, it, it's not even that it doesn't exist in the public domain. It doesn't exist in the world of imagination. This story is so electric because he's never heard this story before. This is a story that he, as a reader, as a writer, has never come across before. And that is exactly why, I mean, it, it, it's the same reason I stopped my life and wrote this novel. Because I came up with this idea and I thought, I've never seen this before. And, you know, I've read a lot of books. Um, that doesn't mean it's a good idea. But in this case, it also was. It's already <laughs> well, be so obscure. You know, we don't want to no, give, wanna give anything away. Well, yeah. And I mean, I, the story, it, it is the best story ever told. Uh, and so, <laughs> well, of course, know you know, well, the, well he, you know, the, uh, the obvious question really is, uh, well, it's the best story ever told until we reach the end of your book, which then your, the story you come up with is even better than the story itself. But did did you ever just think of taking this story, the one that Jake steals, and just writing that as, you know, as a book? It's so funny that you say that because just this morning I read that very question on Instagram and I thought, well, as, given that the, the chapters of Crib that I was forced by my editor to write, I did not want to write them, um, were the hardest part of this book for me to write. I think it, it would be some kind of torture to, to have to write them. So a major player in this mix is the low residency MFA program where Jake teaches and where he meets Evan. Um, some of our listeners might not know what low residency MFA means. I like, we don't have to dwell on this, but this is really like a booming business, is it not? I mean, there are MFA, Masters of Fine Arts programs uh, in writing, visual arts, music, all, all kinds of things um, at, at major universities uh, all over the place. But now we have this thing where all these little programs are popping up and people come and they come like twice a year, I think, and they get together for a few weeks and then they go off the rest of the year and they kind of do online correspondence uh, learning with their, with their teachers. And, uh, so, so Jake teaches in, in such a program. I have to say it reminded me of Goddard, 
college? Is that what you based it on? Uh, the uh, the low res MFA up there in Vermont? Uh, kind of. Yeah, actually. Did, have we discussed this before? I feel like I no, but I, I have taught up there. Um, I, 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 did a, I did a little stint. Well, no, I did a little stint. I was they brought me in. I was like the low, low, low residency person because they brought me in for like one night to, right. to do something. Right, you were the lowest something. of but, the low. Yes, which was perfect. <laughs> no, that was exactly the right amount of time. But, right, right. You know, I, I mean, I do. I think it's fair to call this a, a loving send up of this kind yeah, of place. Yeah, and and I should point out that my mother went to Goddard College in the 1950s, oh. and years ago we were spending uh, summers in Vermont. My husband was teaching at the Breadloaf School of English and. We were up there near Goddard uh, one day, and and I said I really want to see the campus. And I mean, it, it was beautiful, but you really had this sense that the place was just on its last leg. And so when I created this fictional uh, college, Ripley College, um, named in homage to Patricia Highsmith, as will become clear to anybody who reads the book, um, I, I did have Goddard in mind, and I hope it is a loving send up, but. I, I mean, I should declare that I did not get an MFA, um, although I, I have friends who got a lot out of their MFA experiences, including one of my best friends who went to a low residency program at Bennington, which she loved. So I, I, I don't mean to be cruel. I'm an equal opportunity satirist, I hope. Uh, there's so much fun to be poked at so many different kinds of people. Why stop at one? Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of this comes down to the, the the meta question or the, you know, the overall question of whether writing can even be taught. And that is, a uh, you know, it's not something I wake up in the morning and dwell on all day, but it is something that I've thought about a lot over the years. Uh, just because I didn't get an MFA, I, I, I don't, I, I'm not pure. <laughs> I did spend two years in a graduate program. Uh, which I knew was not going to lead to an academic career. And I used that time to read and write. So I kind of had my own do-it-yourself uh, MFA. But uh, I, I don't know. I'm not sure it can be taught. Your husband is the poet Paul Muldoon, who teaches creative writing at, at Princeton and has for a very long time. Uh, is this something that the two of you talk about? I mean, you're, you're saying it, you're not sure if it can be taught. And yet yeah. you're married to somebody who I teaches it. I, so it's, I'm a terrible person. What can I say? No, I, <laughs> I a terrible Paul, wife. That's Paul is a great teacher of poetry. And, you know, he teaches poetry through the poetry of, you know, Keats and Shelley and other major poets. And he also teaches the writing, of, teaches poetry through the writing of his students. I think he approaches it that way, that, you know, that it's not about teaching somebody to, to write. It's about teaching them to read and understand poetry. And if that leads to their going on to, to write poetry, then, then great. And if it leads to their enjoying and having a kind of more intellectual relationship with poetry, that's also great. But he, he truly loves his students. And I think the students he loves the most are the ones who, you know, aren't, don't intend to be poets. They're the engineers and the neurobiologists and they're, they're exploring and they're learning about poetry through their own attempts to write poetry. So that's all good. Um, I, I guess my, my uh, concern <laughs> is, a, as you mentioned, these programs are incredibly lucrative for universities. You don't need uh, laboratories. You don't need much of anything. You need a and conference And they're not room. handing out scholarships. 
for the most that's part. That's right. right. That's right. Yes. So they're expensive and people, you know, go into debt to get this degree. The low residency ones, let's be clear. Let's, yeah, the low residency ones people are, people are paying for. There are certainly MFA programs all over the country that have very small numbers of students that are very competitive and they will fund you just so I don't get a lot of people emailing me and okay. yelling at me. So, yes. So, I mean, I think the best reasons to do it are I wanted to meet other writers. I wanted a kind of defined time and space to write. You know, most people don't live their lives among other writers. I mean, those of us who have been kind of mucking around in in literary circles and among writers, we're we're very unusual. I think for for a lot of people who are interested in writing, they may be the only person they know who's trying to write fiction or poetry. So, for them to twice a year go to a beautiful college campus and meet you know thirty other people who are interested in what they're interested in, that's fantastic. Um, can it make you a better writer? I do not know. I do not know. You've written at least two other novels set on college campuses. Correct me if it's more than that. No, one, that's, that's right. That's right. Okay. One is Admission, and that was from 2009, about an admissions officer at Princeton. And that was made into a film with the same name. Is that right? Was yes, the movie also yes, called was. Admission? Okay. The other is The Devil and Webster, which came out in 2017. That's told from the point of view of a college president. And it took on a number of very fraught issues around campus politics and race and identity. Those issues have only intensified since then. Mm. Uh, and I'm assuming you wrote that novel, what, in like 2015, 2014 uh, even? Yeah, that's about right. I, I Literally the week that I turned it in, the situation at Yale just exploded. And I just thought, oh my God, this is really life imitating art. That was the um, situation with the with the uh, Nicholas Christakis or which one are you referring to? Okay. Right. That's where his, his wife had the, had the gall to suggest that dressing up as somebody you weren't was not an evil. Well, this was a, this was like, uh, you know, the, the 74th uh, Halloween costume uh, brouhaha uh, of, of of the year. Yeah. So it it always comes down to Halloween costumes. Right. So that was, I think (laughs) where, yeah. So, so Erica Christakis, who was a, uh, professor at, at, at Yale had uh, written some memo saying that students sort of needed to to be, you know, emotionally self-sufficient when it came to uh, deciding what they should dress up as uh, for Halloween and, and, you know, not not police other people's costumes. Anyway, this turned into one of the kind of um, the, the, one of the sort of seminal campus uh, upsets. They always they tend to happen at at, at Yale. Whatever happens at <laughs> Yale or Harvard uh, tends to to sort of suck all the air out of the out of the other examples. So, you know, I'm curious, when did you start noticing this kind of climate on campuses? What, what moved you to, to write that novel? It's, um, it's really, it's very prescient. Well, I never, I didn't start that novel with the issue. I wasn't writing about the issue. I was writing about this particular character who, and this is the only time this has ever happened in my work. This is a, The Devil and Webster is essentially a sequel to an earlier write, uh, novel I wrote called The Sabbath Day River, but nobody knows that, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, about eight people read The Sabbath Day River when it came out in 1999, and 20 years later, uh, when I began to think about the story that I wanted to write, it, I realized I was thinking about the same woman, and it was 20 years later, and she'd gone from being this kind of counterculture hippie who had uh, turned a, vi- a, a, a vista 
volunteer stint in northern New Hampshire into a business. And at the end of that novel, somebody says to her, you know, you're not a you're not a aid worker. You're a you're an entrepreneur. And she's like, no, I'm not. Mm, So uh, what happens to that character? 20 years later, she's gone back to school. She's gotten a doctorate and she's now teaching at this college called Webster College, which is kind of half Dartmouth and half Wesleyan. And through a series of uh, kind of bizarre events, she becomes the president of this college. and, And now she's the man. And when there is a student protest, which in this case involves her own daughter, who's every bit the counterculture, you know, firebrand as an undergraduate that she herself had been, um, she is the person who is being protested against. So that's what I was interested in. And I was, uh, the the story uh, or the reason that there's this protest has to do with a professor who's denied tenure. And there's another character who's an extremely charismatic undergraduate who's Palestinian. And this all came from uh, a story that I heard. And here we are back with the stories <laughs> that you heard. Somebody had told me a story about something that had happened at a well-known college uh, back in the 90s. And I missed it. I, I had not heard the story, but I instantly knew that I wanted to write about the story. Um, you know, my kids were very young in the nineties. I probably wasn't reading the paper that much. Uh, and the minute I heard it, it, it's like one of those sparks, uh, came and I, I began to sort of dwell on this idea and think about the campus environment that, uh, would have surrounded it. And then this character from my previous novel kind of walked into the middle of it and it became about her. So to answer your question in that very long winded way, um, I didn't start by saying, hey, I want to write about campus politics and identity politics. That came in the processing of this idea and this story and this character. If I'm remembering it correctly, the the inciting incident, the 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 professor who is denied tenure is African American. Is that correct? Is that right? And he's really just kind of a mediocre professor. Like that's yes, why he was he, denied. But tenure. there's also something that the tenure committee knows that the students don't know. And that right. the professor isn't telling them. And, and to, imagine that. Imagine that. <laughs> and it is something uh, that absolutely disqualifies him for tenure. You know, the, um, the Maureen Corrigan review of the novel on, on Fresh Air, I thought was, was really interesting. She, she opens up her review by saying, a few days ago, one of my students asked me what I was reading. So I told her about Jean Hamp. Korolitz's new novel called The Devil and Webster. My students' eyes got wider as I finished lightly summarizing the plot. Uh, and uh, my student said, uh, with some concern about Korolitz, I hope she's ready for all the angry tweets and emails. Uh, this, were, were you? I mean, uh, I would have been a odd way to open a review. They never came because frankly, not many people read the book, but I would have been, you know, I don't think of myself as a brave person. I think of you as a brave person. You're like my, you're my spirit animal, the way you wade into all of this stuff. I am much more squeamish. Um, but I mean, I would have been happy if it had been part of a larger conversation, but uh, in the book, the book did did, did not uh, find an audience, so it, it sort of never happened. We're going to pause here for a brief message. Hi there. My name's Paul Shirley. 
I'm a former professional basketball player turned writer and also the founder of a thing called The Process. I'm honored to have a few seconds within Megan's podcast to tell you what we do at The Process. If you're anything like most people, you're scattered, overstimulated, and frustrated by your inability to concentrate for long periods of time. Texts, emails, social media, and somehow you're expected to make progress at your job and on your passion projects. It's a lot. This is where the process comes in. I believe that everything worth doing requires a process to do it, a set of habits and routines that allow you to access sustained periods of deep work. Through virtual co-working and productivity coaching, that's what we do at the process. We help people like you learn to be productive, not busy. And here's the best part. You won't be doing this alone. Inside our platform, you'll meet people from all over the world, people who are dealing with the same frustrations you are, and people who want the same things you do structure, accountability, community, and most of all, progress on the projects most important to you. We'd love to have you. To learn more, come see us at createyourprocess.com. So you went to Dartmouth, uh, and were you there in the in the early 80s? We don't, you don't need to, okay. So was did you feel that it was a conservative place, or was it just there were a few conservatives there, so therefore it was more conservative than, it say, was a place- Oberlin? In transition, uh, and its transition had been delayed. Uh, we were behind the rest of the Ivies. We were the last Ivy to, to admit women. Uh, we had the smallest percentage of Jews in the Ivy League. It, everything that was had happened at other Ivy League colleges had had gotten a head start on us. That doesn't mean that we didn't get there eventually. We did. You know, Dartmouth today, in, in terms of its student body, is identical to. Princeton, Brown, I mean, those differences really do not exist today. But back then, uh, there was still a quota for women. Mm. And what what really, um, I, what I found amazing was that my new classmates, the, the women in my class, were every bit as ambitious as I was. They wanted to run companies. They wanted to be doctors and lawyers. They wanted to go into politics. But very few of even those women would acknowledge feminism. And they certainly wouldn't acknowledge the fact that they were there because of feminism. Right. So that was that time in the 80s when I think feminism just kind of read to people or a certain kind of person as that kind of 70s aesthetic. They they just, they they associated the word with this kind of way of being that they they were going to somehow transcend or they were too corporate or serious or business-like. Exactly to, right. You know. And I, like, and I would we, say, we don't have hairy armpits. You, that was yeah, really what it right. meant. I yeah. said, like, how do you think you got here? Exactly. Do you think they just said, hey, I know what we should do. Let's open open the doors. No, it, you know, kicking and screaming. I, I think people don't realize that Columbia University only went co-ed in 1982 or 84 even. I'm not one of those. Um which but they seems at like least yesterday. had women there. Had, I mean, we didn't have women Barnard. there. Well, they yeah. had Barnard, right. So when you say quotas for women at Dartmouth, do you mean they only let in so many women so there would still be more men? Or what do you mean yeah. exactly? Yeah, because wow. they were, they were. I mean, I can't speak for the admissions office. My my understanding is that they were, they were easing uh, their way towards parity. And by uh, by my class, I think we were something like 40%. Now, now it's, I think there are even more women at Dartmouth than men. Right. That is true. Most, most places. Yes. Um, so what you were, what were the years when you were at Princeton? You were living in Princeton. That was very much your, 
milieu. Yeah, pretty much from 1990 to, I think we moved back to the city in 2013. Okay. So So one of the things that comes up, especially on this show, when we talk about some of these issues is like, you know, people say, well, campuses have always, there has always been this kind of what we used to call PC, political correctness that was in play in the 90s. I mean, certainly, yeah, the the 80s that you're talking about with your own college experience, that was a particular kind of Reagan era, baked in conservatism that you saw kind of brought more broadly, just, just culturally. But, you know, by the 90s, I think going to a liberal arts college meant that you were steeped in a certain kind of what we now call progressivism. Uh, you know, you were going to have a kind of leftist education, if at least if you majored in certain things. Um, and it seems so different now. It seems so, it just, it's so much more intense now. But sometimes people say, well, it was ever thus. So what is the difference? And I know you're not somebody who, I, I don't, I'm not going to like, you know, have you speak as any sort of authority on this, but just Thank as somebody you. who lived, but it's just, it's somebody who as is, is a really gifted observer of of the world and somebody who was living in these sorts of environments what do you see what's different about today than say 1995 like how, what do you say to the person who says well it's it's always been like this so what do you what is everybody belly aching about well uh, first thing i would say is that's that in itself is a completely inaccurate statement <laughs> that it's always been like this i mean when i was preparing to write admission. I read I read every How to Get Into College book, um, but I also read a um, a book called The Chosen, which was written by I think his name is Jerome Carabel. Uh, he's a professor, I believe, at Berkeley. Who uh, The Chosen is basically a hundred year study of admissions at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. And when you read that book, you see the pendulum. And the pendulum has swung back and forth all through the 20th century. And and that's a good thing. Um, but if you, and when I say the pendulum, I mean that the, that the 20th century began with, I put my son's name down for Princeton. And he could, you know, and, tw- and 18 years later, he entered Princeton. And by the end of the 20th century, um, you were not in a particularly advantaged if you were the child of, a, uh, of an alum. Um, and you were much more advantaged if you were the first person in your family to go to, to go to college, if you were, you know, a brilliant, but unusual ethnicity, um, there were all sorts of things that moved you ahead of that earlier traditional applicant pool. And that is a good thing. Um, but what happened as the p- pendulum swings, there is a kind of counterforce in the faculty asking for, uh, an adjustment of the pendulum. So for example, uh, I don't want to be too specific about this, but I, what I used to hear in the nineties, uh, among faculty whom I, uh, you know, was friendly with was that what they were missing in their students was, uh, (laughs) they wanted more, fewer students who were good, a little bit good at everything. And more students who were brilliant at one thing but couldn't tie their shoes. And that is a direct quote. I mean, it's a direct quote from a cocktail party, but it's still a direct quote. They wanted the kids who'd been like them, frankly, in high school. They wanted the kid who was a brilliant physicist but couldn't have swung a baseball if, you know, 
if you tried to show him how. They wanted kids who were had that kind of genius in one area, who were not necessarily also in the marching band and also on the field hockey team. And so the admissions office listened to them and and you could see the trend shifting and that's still in place now. I mean they're I mean not to segue too much into admissions, but there no, remained this about that too. Go ahead. there remained this perception for years that in order to get into these colleges you had to have your tea, you know, your sport, your musical instrument and your, you know, uh, charitable outreach and people would dutifully do that. They would devote their entire high school, you know, time to achieving this sort of across the board. And then they would not be rewarded with what they had been seeking. Whereas, you know, some kid in their class who, uh, you know, was not on a team and not in a band and, uh, and they didn't realize was going away on the weekends to compete in, I don't know, uh, debate or something was was getting the space that they had been working towards getting that's a huge oversimplification but just as an expression of how things shift ideas shift priorities shift on these campuses and that extends to academia boy did that take a long time to no, get it, back no to it, it's fascinating no it's fascinating because my impression of kids applying to college today is that they do have to be amazing at everything. I mean, the level of competition is stratospheric. I, my, I mean, I just, I, my heart aches for these Mine kids. Too. I mean, it Mine was, too. it was stressful enough to try to get into college, you know, in the, in the late eighties when I was graduating from high school. And I mean, I'm embarrassed to even make that comparison now. I mean, it, it was, it was like falling off a log. Uh, yeah. Getting into college back then was really just like falling, falling, falling out of bed <laughs> so uh, funny. compared to what it is now. Yeah. And so what do you make of this, this like absolutely manic level of competition? I mean, we had the varsity blues scandal, the college admission scandal out there. So like as somebody who's written about this and, and, you know, you know a lot about this world, are they just kind of, is this overkill? Like, does somebody have the wrong impression with these kids who are, you know, trying to get AP credit in every single subject and excel in every sport and volunteer in every single way, would they be better off just, uh, you know, being, being, being a hedgehog instead of a Fox, so to speak, oh, uh, you know, like the, that. uh, was that the, um, Isaiah Berlin, uh, analogy, you know, the, the, the I, I, head... no, I'm just going to give you credit okay. for it. Cause the, the, I, I never heard that before. Right. The, the Fox knows, uh, knows many things and the hedgehog knows one big thing, right. That ah, was kind of the idea. Maybe. Uh, so like, what, what are these people, why are they doing this? If, if the case is perhaps not well, as they think they're doing it, it because they feel powerless. Um, and, and largely they are powerless and, one of the things that I learned uh, through writing admission and also for working for the Princeton Admissions Office is that one of the biggest reasons for this madness is the fact that it's, for many parents, pretty much the first time since they became parents that they're not in control. You know, they can somewhat control, you know, what school their kid their what high school their kid goes to or what team they're on or what part they get in the play. Um, to some extent, but this, they're out of luck and their money, varsity blues aside, 
will not help. And their influence, by and large, will not help. And they are, it's devastating for them. And, and they're acting out because of it. Um, and listen, I feel their pain. I mean, I'm a parent. I went through this with both my kids. And it was almost as horrible as going through it myself, maybe even more. But, uh, you know, the the good thing about education now is that you can get a fantastic education at far beyond the Ivy League. And there is a real lift all boats kind of situation on campuses all over the country, not only because the faculty are better, but because the students are better. Because, you know, it used to be that the the brilliant students would all go to a handful of schools and nowhere else. And that's not true anymore. They go everywhere and they make it better everywhere they go. So it's really the the status anxiety is something that the parents are clinging on to. Yeah. I wonder if the status anxiety is just going to kind of dissipate as as the generations go on. Like if you, you know, the, the further away we can get from the idea that going to a state school is somehow uh, a, a failure if you've gone to a fancy private high school, um, maybe this will kind of correct itself. I don't know. Well, it would be great. And, you know, I think uplifting community college uh, is a great step towards that. And I'm happy to see that happening. Uh, and the state schools are fantastic. So, I, I mean, that should happen. But on the other hand, you look at, um, let's call it the wish to go to Harvard. That, until 50 years ago, belonged to one social group that belonged to white, upper middle class Americans. You know, you went beyond that social group, people probably never heard of Harvard. Now, I want to go to Harvard is the goal of many immigrant groups, the children of many immigrant groups. It's the goal of kids who live far from America. I just interviewed students for Dartmouth. I interviewed them in Africa. I interviewed them in Asia. Uh, people all over the world want to go to these colleges. So it, it's it's hard to imagine that it's going to correct anytime soon. You've had several books, or at least you've had two books made into into movies. One was Admission, uh, and the other was um, is uh, you should have known. You should which have known the undoing. Which the, the undoing, which a lot right. of people are familiar with. It, this was the Nicole Kidman, Hugh Grant uh, limited series that ran on HBO uh, last fall. Was it already last fall? Yeah, uh, or earlier this in year. October. Gosh, yeah. oh my gosh. Okay. So what is that like? I mean, that is the dream. So if, if you are if you are Jake from uh from the plot, yeah. uh, uh pre success, I would imagine that all he wants in life is to have his novel uh turned in, turned into a film. And uh and yet you're you say that you uh your success has nowhere near approached uh, uh Jake's uh Jake's success. So yes, so tell tell I'm us what that's closer, like. I'm much closer to Jake's pre uh, <laughs> appropriation uh, success. Even though you've had Nicole Kidman and, and Hugh Grant. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, say I, your would, I would venture that very few of the people listening to this podcast had ever heard of me until uh, maybe until October when uh, The Undoing began. But I mean, I'm seven novels into a career. And, you know, the nice thing about that is that the novels are absolutely unchanged from when they were published. They're, they're there in their, you know, uh, their glory or their the opposite of glory, whatever you feel reading them. But they, you know, when I discover a writer late in their career, I'm thrilled because there's all that work that I get to go back and discover. And I've, 
I've done that uh, a number of times. But I mean, the novels are all there, and if people want to read them, you know, I'd be thrilled. But uh, but 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 I was not. I was very much a midlist uh, novelist, and very fortunate that I had a uh, an editor who believed in me and who kept me uh, kept publishing my work despite my lack of sales mojo. Well, Jean, before we um, kind of close this out, I want to talk about uh, this wonderful uh, enterprise that you launched several years ago called Book the Writer. This is a pop up book club um program i don't know what you would call it where you have uh you have writers come in and they uh talk to really smart people who have actually read the book and have paid <laughs> and have paid to be there That's uh, right. and the and the writer gets paid uh what a concept uh for going to, to speak about their work so so tell us about book the writer and and really specifically like have you learned anything just about the life of the writer beyond your own experience as a writer in, in doing this? Have you had any revelations just about this whole world uh, through this, this uh, project? <laughs> I have, I've, I've learned a lot. Um, this grew out of something that I used to do when I lived in Princeton. I, I had something called the meet the author book group. Uh, and I ran it as a charity for uh, an organization I was on the board of in Princeton. And all the participants made a donation to the charity. And uh, we had authors come down from New York or some live in Princeton. And everybody would read the book and buy the book. Buying the book was very important. And we would just sit around my living room and discuss it. And when I moved back to New York in 2012, I decided to see if this could work as an actual business. I don't think of myself as particularly entrepreneurial. And in fact, the first version of Book the Writer wasn't successful. I was trying to send authors to book groups. But what I learned, <laughs> here's what I learned. Number one, people in groups don't always agree about things. And I was hearing a lot of, well, I think this is a great idea, but I can't get the rest of my book group to agree. So I kind of flipped the concept and I set up the events with the authors and people, individuals signed up for them. And we would meet in living rooms in Manhattan sometimes gorgeous living rooms. <laughs> Our unofficial slogan is come for the literature, stay for the real estate. Because um, <laughs> as New Yorkers, we're all obsessed with real estate. But um, when the pandemic happened, I took a deep breath and we went online and we have been having these events online for the past year. And we've had people from all over the world, which is absolutely amazing. Um, we are going to transition back to uh, actual rooms in New York City this fall, but I am going to try to maintain some kind of an online element because I, I mean, I hate to lose all these participants from Australia and Europe and South America. Um, it's been great. So we have, we have a full summer of programming coming up. We have some absolutely wonderful writers. And in the fall, we've got an amazing group. We've got Chang Ray Lee and Jimpa Lahiri and, um, Edmund Duvall and just just such great people. And Russell Banks is coming. It's going to be great. Um, so what have I learned? I've learned that uh, <laughs> inside a writer who seems like they're absurdly successful is a writer who has struggled. And I mean, there was one particular book group we did before the pandemic 
with uh, a young woman whose first novel appeared to have like won every prize and was a huge bestseller. And I, I admit to having been a little bit jealous. And then over the course of our conversation, we really heard about her, the book she had written that had all been rejected and her kind of pulling herself together and writing this other book. And, and it's very rare that people don't really work hard for their success. And, and it's usually very much deserved. And in this case, it was just a fantastic book. So um, I learned that. But the other, another thing that I've learned is that uh, people are always amazed to discover that the author of the book that they have just read uh, was herself or himself surprised by something or everything in the book that they wrote, that uh, it wasn't all pre-understood before the first word of the book was written. And this is something that we writers know because we've had that experience of being, of learning and being surprised as we're writing. But I think to a reader, you know, who's looking at a page and the words are, it's all black and white and it looks completely set in stone. The idea that there was uncertainty and, uh, you know, that decisions were made throughout uh, the writing of the book is, is shocking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So at every point, I mean, in every single book group, somebody asks some version of the question, did you know when you began that X was going to happen? And then when the answer is no, I didn't know, they're surprised. And it's so much fun to wait for the question and then see the response. (laughs) And what's the question that you think people should not ask? So for everybody listening who ends up, you know, in, in audiences in these sorts of book clubs or in audiences in readings, like, what would you say, uh, if people, if this question comes to their mind, they should just not ask it okay, because it's I, annoying or unanswerable. Of all writers, I beg you not to ask, where do you get your ideas? I beg you. I just beg you. Just don't do it. Um, Stephen King uh, finally came up with a question, with an answer to this question that we can all use. And the, the answer is Utica, New York. So um, where do you get your ideas? Utica, New York. One final question. I'm, I'm really curious about this. Uh, you you wrote this during the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic is not mentioned in the book. So what's going to happen? Like, I assume there will be a bunch of novels coming out that deal with the pandemic. But going forward, if someone's going to write a novel, are they going to have to acknowledge this as a historical event? Is there sort of a before and after that is unavoidable? I mean, I remember like I I, I was writing a novel, the one novel I've ever published in 2000 and 2001, basically. And I remember when 9-11 happened and I thought, oh my gosh, now I have to like somehow shoehorn that in or acknowledge it, or it's going to be like this glaring omission how do you think people are going to handle that? Is everything just going to have to be, if you don't want to take on the pandemic, are you just going to have to like set your, your book in, in 2019 and, and call it a day or like, what do you think? I think you'll have to actually, um, this is the second time that I've been faced with this kind of issue. The first was, uh, nine 11. I had been writing a novel and I put it, I, I abandoned it. And because my, my 
deep need at that time was to be in a time before that had happened. And the novel that I wrote instead, um, The White Rose, was, you know, energetically set before 9-11. And I think with this novel, it, you know, I'm lucky because it can be set in 2019. And in my mind, it is set in 2019. But I think if you were setting out to write a novel that uh, was set in 2020 or 2021, then you, if the pandemic isn't there, I'm certainly going to want to know why. Well, Jean, thank you so much for, for speaking with me. This has been a great conversation. And um, the novel is really, really it's it's great. It's just like very it's very page turning and just also Thanks, a really um a really wonderful literary experience. So I wish you the best of luck with it. I, I feel like it's gonna be I feel like it's gonna be huge. Not hopefully not um quite the, the Jake Jacob Finch Bonner uh level of overwhelming uh fame. Just definitely just, do not want his brand of overwhelming. Just the right amount. Just yeah, the, the right, right amount. amount. So anyway, well thank you so much, Jean. Thanks, Megan. That was my interview with Jean Hanth Korolitz. Jean is the author of nine books, most recently The Plot, just out from Macmillan's Celadon Books. Yet another novel, The Latecomer, will be published by Celadon next year. She also has a theater career, which we didn't touch on at all. With her husband, the poet Paul Muldoon, Jean adapted James Joyce's The Dead as an immersive theatrical event that was performed at New York's American Irish Historical Society in 2016 through 2018. Jean is also the founder of Book the Writer, a pop-up book club enterprise that brings authors and readers together for curated book discussion groups. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. For ad-free versions of this podcast, visit the Patreon page at patreon.com slash the unspeakable and support the show at any level. If you join at the $10 a month or higher level, you will get $10 off your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. There are hats, shirts, mugs, thermoses, stickers, magnets. Those are ideal if you, like me, are a little commitment phobic about stickers. You can find all of that in the Nuance store on the show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Blinded by love and worlds apart. It's a new season of 90 Day Fiance the Other Way. TLC is shaking up Sunday nights as all the drama heads overseas. Cheating scandals, culture clashes, and even a devastating hurricane won't stop these six couples from following their hearts. With everything on the line, can their love go the distance? 90 Day Fiancé the Other Way, every Sunday at 8, 7 Central on TLC. Set your DVR. It's the Home and Auto Bundle Extrava Festa Save-A-Thon, the annual year-long event where you could save big by bundling Home and Auto with Progressive. So big that we're kicking things off with fireworks! A monster truck battle. A fighter jet flyover. And it wouldn't be a party without the Home and Auto Bundle Extrava Festa Save-A-Thon dancers. You 
can't really hear them, but trust us, they are working it. So come for the fun and stay for the savings. Only at Progressive's Home and Auto Bundle Extrava Festa Savathon. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.